Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today we're going to be talking about the Eastern Catholic Churches. Yeah, we're going to look at the history of the Eastern Catholic Churches, some of the distinctions and the differences between the Western Latin Churches and what you should know. So, throw up your set. East side? West side? All right, great to be back in the studio with you, Father A Rich. pleasure, a pleasure. Ryan, uh, Ryan, why don't you introduce our yeah. distinguished guests? We have with us today Father Elias Rafai. Uh, he is a byzantine Ruthenian Catholic priest. Welcome mm-hmm. to the Catholic Welcome. Talk Show. Thank you. Good to be here. He is the first uh, Eastern Catholic that we have had on the show, so that's a... That's yeah, a and a lot of and our honor. audience uh, out there, you guys have been asking us to... To, to kind of bring somebody in to do this. Yeah. Or, or we, you asked us to do this, but we couldn't do it by ourselves. So right. we need some help. <laughs> yeah, you and that's that. where you come in, Father Elias. I think they get that, to Father Rich. Well, to, to think about this, though, you know, the universal church, you know, breathes together with two lungs. And, and John Paul II described it as such. And to have you here on this show, in all sincerity, all joking aside, yeah. is truly a, a great benefit to our audience, as well as to just the the roundtable discussion that yeah. we're going to have today. So it's yeah. great having you. Yeah. yeah so so many times people have said you guys call yourselves the Catholic Talk Show, but you only represent the West, and that is an incomplete story of what the Catholic Church is. Very true. And they're absolutely true because we the Catholic Church is not just the Western Latin Rite. In fact, there are twenty three. Catholic churches in addition to the Western Latin Rite, and they are equal in history, dignity, and fully being Catholic. So, Father Elias, would you uh, introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I'm Father Elias Rafai. I'm the pastor of St. John Chrysostom Byzantine Catholic Church here in Houston, and um, I am originally from Chicago. I've been a priest for 20 years. And uh, I was educated in Rome, where I entered the seminary, uh, which was a Greek seminary. And I studied in uh, Rome and Greece and Lebanon before coming back to the U.S. Excellent. What, uh, which uh, Catholic church are you a priest in? I'm a priest of the Byzantine Ruthenian Catholic Church. Ruthenian, okay. Which is the it is the church that is closely associated with the legacy of Saint Cyril Methodius. Okay. And they came from which apostle? No, they were later on. So Cyril okay. and Methodius were sent to uh evangelize evangelize the eastern people on the far outside ends of the Roman Empire. Uh they're they're co-patrons of Europe as a matter of fact. Uh they created the um Old Slavonic language. They created the alphabet that you still see called Cyrillic after St. Cyril. They're wow. incredibly, along with St. Benedict, they are the co-patrons of Europe. Benedict kind of being that patron of the Western kind of thought and Cyril Methodius of the Eastern part of Europe. Mm-hmm. And Cyril Methodius were uh, brothers uh, who were sent by the by the Emperor Michael III uh, from Constantinople to ev- evangelize the Slavs who had asked for uh, Christian missionaries. Hmm. And so they were sent from Constantinople to uh, what is roughly today Czech Republic, Slovakia, 
and Hungary. That was the region which they evangelized the Slavic peoples. So now to understand why there is the distinction between the East and West, there's a little bit of history that has to get out of the way so you can understand the context. In ancient times, the Roman Empire essentially encompassed the entire known world and the Mediterranean basis in the Near East. But after a certain amount of time, that administration became incredibly difficult for the Romans to be able to administer it properly. So Constantine split it into what was called the Tetrarchy, where there was four co-emperors or, or Caesars. And essentially the empire was split between the eastern and the western half, with the western half being administered from Rome and the eastern half being administered from Byzantium, which he renamed Constantinople. Uh, one of the main distinctions is that the West spoke Latin and the East spoke Greek. Now, through the course of history, these two sides... Is Greek and Aramaic... Well, I mean, technically, Rome... Rome spoke Greek as well. Rome, yeah, because, I mean, Kyrieleison is not Latin. Yeah, it's Koine co- co- Greek. This is so just like, the Latin, right, just taking and absorbing itself <laughs> well, no, and, was, and all because things. It was, it was the language for all the educated class of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so Latin was kind of the common language. Gotcha. You spoke Latin to the horses and co-wine to the educated. <laughs> uh, you had sophisticated discussions there. That's I, mean, it. I, th- I think the more more we learn, the the more we realize that they're way more sophisticated. In, yeah, for all the, the for all the tradies who want to go back to the original language, you know, like oh, we need to bring back Latin. Now let's bring back Greek or Aramaic. You know, Koine so, yeah. Greek is is it's important to realize that all of the Gospels, you know, all of the New Testament, you know, our liturgical structure, the prayers that we say. All of that was Greek. And, it, you know, the Latin Vulgate didn't come around until Jerome. Jerome. Jesus yeah. himself likely growing up in the, um, the the Decapolis area would have understood Greek. He likely would not have understood much Latin. That's true a historical statement. fact. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it depends if that came out of his divinity. So he probably... Did pretty good in Greek too. You're wrong again. I'm this wrong. is fine. <laughs> we this need to have so you off more often. This is I know. Excellent. I love it when he's wrong because he's not wrong a lot. <laughs> so essentially, what happened is after the fall of the Roman Empire, the East continued on and became much more powerful than the West. And through power struggles, um, they started to drift apart uh, socially, politically, yeah. and. Well, one of one of the big issues was managing an enormous uh, empire that had a number of different nationalities, mm-hmm. and and so the divisions of the empire were basically an ethnic thing, mm-hmm. and the largest groups were the people who spoke Aramaic or Syriac, mm-hmm. the people who spoke Coptic, and then of course the Greek and the Latin. And um, you'll see those. What's divisions. Coptic? Is that Egyptian? Ancient Egyptian. Egyptian. Okay. It's a Christian form of ancient Egyptian. So okay. it's written with Greek letters, but uh, it's the same as the hieroglyphics. And the gotcha. cities of importance in that? Well, Alexandria for the Egyptians, for Coptic, mm-hmm. uh, Antioch for Syriac and Aramaic, uh, which are basically the same language. Uh, Jerusalem was important because of being the city chosen by God for his temple, and of course the city of Jesus' uh, passion, death, and resurrection. And um, and then Rome for Latin and Greek. And um, Constantinople comes into the scene a little later because it was founded on, on what was a little fishing village, but it was established as a city in the year 324 
uh, right before the Council of Nicaea. So it's kind of the last of the great Roman cities. Out of curiosity, there, there's so many saints that we honor in our Roman calendar that, you know, sometimes we can kind of tend to think that they're Latin right, but they're they're actually Eastern. And we've already named a few that that were from the Eastern uh, right churches mm-hmm. uh, in your own tradition. You know, do, are there Latin saints that you that you reverence or revere in your calendar or how does that how is that structured for you? And in, in... Well, each each of the churches, each of the Eastern churches has its own particular calendar and calendar of saints. And the saints usually are reflective of um, either some religious interaction, some history that connects uh, that church with the Latin church. Um, so, like, for example, many Eastern churches will have St. Francis, and that's because they probably have some form of Franciscan uh, religious life in their church. Mm. And so that's that's kind of the extent, I think, of the interaction. Then, of course, there there are saints who have importance for the universal church, and so they are uh, shared. So, you know, like Benedict and um, Nicholas. Nicholas. Well, Nicholas is ours first, so. Damn, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Well, Nicholas became not according to the, <laughs> Viennese, the, the, the Vienna and the Italian uh, pirates Ooh. who stole his relics. Ooh, I moved it to my grandfather's hometown. <laughs> yeah, well, you call him Saint Nicholas of Bari, and he just—I see him cringe when you say that. <laughs> Saint Nicholas in captivity. Oh, well, you know, Saint Nicholas is is truly, you know, when I when I went there for the first time. I was just so touched because I walked in and I had this overwhelming experience of the Eastern churches as well as the West. And I went down into the tomb area and what was happening upstairs was a marriage ritual in the Eastern ritual practice. And then downstairs, uh, Vespers evening prayer was beginning in the Latin, right? And I went and I prayed near this triptych of of uh, right next to the tomb of St. Nicholas and I had this overwhelming feeling as the bells were ringing that I needed to pray for the unification of east and west and I remember coming back to my school Ave Maria University that I love very very dearly um and I I spoke to a priest that will remain nameless and I said you know father you know I really admire you and you've been in the church for a long time you're very very smart you know do you think that it'll ever be possible that we would actually be united again. And he just kind of brushed it off as like an impossibility. And I remember walking away just so downtrodden, like my heart was really hurting over that, went into the chapel, and I just felt encouragement from the Lord in prayer, continue your prayers for unification. And I went in through the Vatican, and I was walking through the museum, and I saw all of these icons of St. Nicholas that were given by the East to the West in relationship. Mm-hmm. And I just felt that St. Nicholas is the one patron that we could really turn to in this relationship that we have. So I'm just so happy to have you. But, you know, so much of my ministry centers around his intercession and my family life because a part of my family is all from Bari and, and Barese. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really good. Really now, good to have you. Now, getting back into how this all plays in the history and why there is Eastern and Western Catholic churches, um, those five um Seas that you mentioned, which are Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem, were called the Pentarchy. And they were essentially the bishops, the highest ranking bishops, the bishops in a place of honor. Uh, they were known as the patriarchs, okay? And each one of those was founded by one of the apostles. So Andrew, 
Mark, Peter, James, and Peter. Peter was Rome and Antioch. Andrew. Can we do a Co- fact check? Is he is he good? <laughs> yes. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Approved. Constantinople is Andrew. Andrew. Uh, uh, Mark for the Coptics in Alexandria. James in um, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So all of these were the direct descendants of these very important apostles, and they had these places of honor within the church. Four of them were considered essentially in the Eastern Empire, and the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, was the Patriarch of the West, essentially. Now, over the course of time, with the collapse of the Roman Empire, those two drifted apart politically. And then, and you brought this up, that in the year 800, the West tried to establish, and it did establish, the first emperor of the West since the fall of Rome, which would have been Charlemagne, which was a shot across the bow against Constantinople, who had been the historical and continuous empire all the way back to the first emperors of Rome. And that really was a big part and the, I guess the origin of this massive political division that it was almost a... It was like a secession. It was like a, mm-hmm. a secession, exactly. Um, anything about that that's interesting there? Yeah, you know, the I think the tension between Rome and Constantinople uh, really began with Constantine because Constantine, when he, he grew so frustrated with the paganism that continued to exist in Rome, even though he was supporting Christianity, that he decided to move uh, move the capital. And with him, of course, goes the money, the moneyed families. And so from that time, there's a bit of tension. And Rome becomes, is the first see uh, for, even for government, historically, but no longer sees the money it needs to exist. Most of that is spent on Constantinople. And so that just adds to this division. Rome becomes um, kind of a, a shell of itself. In the 6th and 7th centuries, numerous invasions of barbarians from the north destroy the city, uh, so much so that parts of the city, entire neighborhoods, were just walled and considered a loss. Yeah, I think it went from a million people to around 30,000 people. Yeah, and that was the time when they brought in all the saints from the catacombs, Mm -hmm. the bodies, relics, brought them all into the city and then covered up the catacombs so that they wouldn't be found for a thousand years. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, it was, so the situation was bad. Mm-hmm. So Charlemagne was proposing something to the Pope and to the city that would give it a new life, give it also unlimited resources. and But in order for him to do that, he needed to have validity. And so by becoming the emperor over the western part of the Roman Empire, eventually the Holy Roman Empire, um, it gave him equality with the, the emperor in Constantinople. He married also into the family of uh, royal family of Constantinople. Hmm. Princess and, Irene. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And so, and then he tried to imitate them. So the Byzantine emperors were all educated at the court of the Patriarch of Constantinople. So they were theologians in their own right. And, uh, and so he tried to imitate that by writing theological treatises too. And in those treatises, he takes up, of course, some of the dicier topics of the day, including the use of unleavened bread in the West, or uh, yeah, unleavened bread and versus leavened bread in the East, and uh, and then the filioque. 
Now, that's very interesting, the whole concept between leavened and unleavened bread. I'm, I'm not familiar with that at all, that, that the Eastern Church uses leavened bread, because we in the West use unleavened bread. Could you contextualize that a little bit, and, and where, well, where does that practice uh, stem from? You know, historically, we're not sure where it comes from. Uh, there is uh, some conjecture that perhaps the use of uh, unleavened bread um, would tie in more faithfully to the Passover and the use of of matzah in mm-hmm. in the in the Passover seder. Um, however, practically speaking, historically, I would my guess is that it was just practical mm-hmm. yeah. because um, leavened bread has a, a certain lifespan, mm-hmm. and in, you can't really store it. You can't really travel with it, and so. Um, um, you know, this was a way of being able to reserve Eucharist without worrying about spoilage. Now, you mentioned something is- interesting about the actual Greek word uh, that Jesus referenced in the bread during the, the Last Supper. And that is one of the seeds of why the, the Eastern churches have always used leavened bread. And what is that? Uh, the word that's in, that we find in the gospel is artos. And artos means leavened bread. Mm. Uh, and so he took artos and he blessed it, broke it. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the biblical background of that that's tradition. Mm-hmm. That's uh, also accurate. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, the word for, for unleavened bread is azimos. Mm. And so and that's the word that does not appear in the gospel. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. That is. And oh. also now, then... I, I do want to mention that not all Eastern churches uh, use um, leavened bread. So there are churches that use unleavened bread also, like the Chaldeans, the Maronites, uh, the Syrian Catholics, uh, the Armenians. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they, again, you know, I think while we tend as a church to theologize a lot of things, uh, there is also a practical side mm, where people yeah. do what is best for the delivery of the message as opposed to, you know, being obsessed with little minutia and details. Yeah. Now, but in the East, all the bread that is consecrated during the, uh, during the divine liturgy is meant to be consumed, where in that's the, not in typically the, the pra- tradition, yes. Which is not typically true in the West, where some is reserved yeah. out, of, out of custom, not maybe mm-hmm. necessarily mm-hmm. And And that's, that's, the, that's the tragedy of how we use our tabernacle in the West, because in all reality, reserve is exclusively for the sick exclusively for the sick. Mm-hmm. And it subsequently became a place of, of adoration. So we have adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. So there's devotion that surrounds the tabernacle as well Reserve. in the West. Yeah, that's 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 been observed. So, but from the very, very beginnings of Reserve, which was in John Lateran with a dove and the the species, the Blessed Sacrament was was placed in the dove and then elevated over the altar, that was just exclusively for administration to the sick. Now we have, I mean, even in practice of my own church, which I'm trying to move in the direction of better practice is, you know, we'll be using reserve till Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday because of over consecration. And it's challenging because you have 600 people at a mass or 500 people at a mass and, or in some churches, even more like, especially in Texas, it's hard to gauge that. And then, you know, mm-hmm. perform to number. So we do share similarly in that respect, but uh, out of practice, no. So then after Charlemagne, after this kind of geopolitical tension, 
continues to accelerate <clears throat> until the year 1054 when the Great Schism happened. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of tragedies and sad comedies that lead up to this moment. Um, Constantinople was in a little bit of an era of decline. The Frankish um, and the Holy Roman Empire were generally uh, doing much better at this time. They were now entering into the, the high Middle Ages. And tensions started to become much more dramatic between the two. And all of these things happened to where eventually, through misunderstandings and kind of tragic comedies, the papal legate of Rome was sent to Constantinople and was not received. And they got into an argument. The pope had died, and he was kind of acting... Well, he didn't know that the Pope he didn't had know died he didn't know that the Pope's defense, but he was kind of going maverick, right? And he excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople by laying the bull of excommunication on the altar of Hagia Sophia. Oh, oh my goodness, that's a bold move. And that that's, was a French cardinal. Yeah, well, leave it to the French. <laughs> well, I'm, wow. I'm French. <laughs> but the fact that it didn't happen under the uh, under the, the authority, pope, yeah, the authority yeah. of the Pope. Is you know we've it's we've a jack had move yeah that I mean that's totally <laughs> since we're throwing signs I mean it was a jack yeah, move right? totally right, totally yeah. so but some of the con <laughs> the pretext for that were the things that you mentioned unleavened bread the way that Easter was celebrating the dates uh, the um, the filioque all of those things were the context but really it was more related to geopolitical financial and Drama. power struggles. Yeah. And, and that's why I feel so strong that there will be a day where we exercise even more beautiful unity because we have the apostolic tradition. And that's that's the most amazing thing that we share with the East. But out of, you know, for our audience, as well as just for my own edification, how has it become the case where we we now have so many churches in the East? How many? How many is it? It's twenty three. Twenty three. Um because it's a little confusing. It's like the apostles set up these different uh, communities, these rituals that have maintained. And then how is it how is it kind of spread that way? Um, uh, there's there's basically there's a little bit of a different ecclesiology that is uh, being taken into account. Um, most of the churches fall under national or ethnic lines. And so uh, where in the Roman Catholic Church, everyone is Roman Catholic. And then you may have like bishops' conferences, uh, but all the different cultures can mix. Mm -hmm. uh, in the East, that was not the situation. And, and especially, I, I think it was firmed up under Islam. And many of our churches uh, spent, you know, over a thousand years under Islam. So not only was the leader of their church uh, a religious leader, but the Ottoman Turks considered him also the ethnic leader. Yeah, you didn't have like the open borders for confluence and things like that. And, yeah. the, and the, the patriarchs were cut off from each other. The bishops were cut off from each other. Communications yeah. were limited. And so it was to, and it, that just created more independence because, mm -hmm. of course, the out the of churches, survival almost. Yeah. Right. Like. They became self governing. And there's a term yeah. for that that's um, autocephalous. Autocephalous. Mm -hmm. Sounds mm -hmm. like a flu or something. Not. <laughs> it's not. I, I know. I know. It just sounded like it. So, hey, I got a question though. When did we reunite? I always thought there was like another Catholic church. Is it the Greek one or something that we're not united well, there's, with? There's, I the Orthodox so, churches are the ones that right. would be not okay. in communion. And there's a Orthodox. very there's a okay. very distinct difference between right. the Eastern Catholic churches and the Orthodox um, 
Yeah. So we're not all in union yet. <clears throat> no, we're not. Okay. But the Eastern Catholic churches are. Now, after the Great Schism, um, it really didn't take much effect. It didn't have much impact on the intercommunion of Christians until a bunch of crusaders went and sat Constantinople during the Fourth, fourth Crusade. And that really was a, you know, beyond a jack move, that was an open declaration of war and complete Breaking cutting point. off yeah. of all communion between. Because, yeah. I mean, the, the the emperor of Constantinople and the patriarch had asked for the crusaders to come to their assistance multiple times. But in this instant, they came and they sacked Rome. Well, and the crusaders were actually returning back to Europe after a defeat. And so they were welcomed into Constantinople as fellow Christians, and and you know the division wasn't re hadn't really taken complete effect, mm -hmm. right. and so they were welcomed there, and and you know then bad house guests things happened, yeah. Wow. Which during that sack of Constantinople, that's where a lot of the relics of the East ended up coming to the West, like 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 the Shroud of Turin likely was probably taken from the walls of Constantinople to Italy and France. Mm. And, oh, and the bodies of the relics of many saints too. Yeah. Yeah. But even things like the, the doors of Hagia Sophia, the cathedral of Constantinople found their way to Southern Italy. Uh, the body, the relics of St. Andrew also. Uh, so it's, it's uh, many of these items one could say, Maybe they were saved, you know, from eventual Turkish conquest, which would have destroyed them. But then again, on the other hand, many experts and historians believe that had Constantinople not been sacked, the city would not have been weakened and put into the position of then eventually having been. Yeah, it was like only, only what, 100, 200 years 200 later. 200 years later that it e fell to Mehmet. Even, even, if it, even if there is positive things that have come out of it, um, you know, you have to recognize it as a Felix culpa and you have to recognize the fault, you know, and, and, and that's something that, that we must do. Was that Latin? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was Latin. I know. And it was a good pronunciation. <laughs> Happy fault. Very good. <laughs> the, the popes, especially beginning with, well, after Vatican II, so they've made a very concerted effort to return many of the relics of the saints, especially oh, beautiful. to the, to the mother sea. So awesome. for example, Constantinople. Uh, the Patriarchal Cathedral of St. George has the relics of St. John Chrysostom and St. Basil the Great. Outstanding. Mm -hmm. And I think recently uh, Pope Francis gave the ecumenical pa uh, Patriarch Bartholomew of Constantinople a share or a portion of the relics of St. Peter that were found under the Vatican as a sign of the brotherhood of Peter and Andrew. Oh, because how beautiful. Andrew That's and Peter cool. are brothers, and yeah. Francis is the successor of Peter, and Bartholomew is the successor of Andrew, and that's a show of that fraternal love between the two. Beautiful. Pretty Great. cool. Great. Now, eventually, now in 1965, those joint excommunications were lifted on the Mount of Olives by uh, Paul VI and Patriarch Athenagoras, I believe it was. And those mutual, after a thousand years, essentially, they were lifted. So they are no longer the excommunications of the Bishop of Rome and the Patriarch of Constantinople no longer exist. Mm. But in the context of all of these historical events, East and West split, and that eventually gave rise to the Eastern Catholic churches. Now, before we get into that part, because there's a lot to it, and we'll talk about all the individual churches and what are some of the differences between the Eastern and Western practices, why don't you tell everyone how they can learn about our 
um, sponsors. Absolutely. We are most grateful for our sponsors. And I have to first start with Hallow. Hallow is the number one Catholic meditation and guided prayer application in the App Store today. Be sure to visit Hallow because when you do, you'll see all sorts of prayer and meditation guided efforts that they have put together in a beautiful and most attractive way. From Teze to Lexio Divina to Rosary and to daily gospel reflections and so much more. This is a beautiful application that you should definitely have on your phone. And if you utilize this platform, you will truly be able to advance in not only your understanding of the Catholic tradition of prayer, but be able to cultivate that in your own practice uniquely to you. This number one Catholic meditation and prayer app is specifically out there for you to grow in your faith. We are so grateful for their work. We are so grateful for their sponsorship. And you should take a moment and check them out because they are truly at the very forefront of technological advancement and the new evangelization. So check out Hallow Catholic Meditations and Prayer App today. We want to tell you about our sponsor, Exodus 90. Exodus 90 is 90 days of prayer and asceticism, cold showers and devout prayer moving through the book of Exodus so that men could find greater freedom in Christ. This program is a tremendous program that over 20,000 men have already gone through, and you should consider becoming the very next member in this very powerful movement. Please consider to join Exodus 90 now. Check them out. You will not regret it. Ave Maria University, our sponsor, is an institution of higher learning in the Catholic tradition, and one that is very, very dear to me, as I am an alumnus and a graduate of 2008 from the new campus. We were part of the first graduating class, and it is awesome to see how much Ave Maria University has grown and has become not only the youngest Catholic institution, but one of the most powerful, driven in academics and faith. It is a university that appeals to all. And we'd like you to consider becoming a student at Ave Maria University, or if you know someone that is of age that may be looking at colleges and universities around the country, be sure to tell them about Ave Maria. There are over 30 majors. There's programs undergrad as well as postgrad, all the way up to PhDs in theology. You do not want to miss a chance to attend this university. It is surrounded by the oratory, this beautiful church in the middle of Ave Maria town, just 30 miles away from Naples and the beautiful beaches. It's in Southwest Florida. So the weather is beautiful, but the greatest thing and the most beautiful thing about the university is the community. The community life is a place where young people find belonging and most importantly, encounter Christ in the beautiful tradition of the Catholic faith. So check out Ave Maria university today. You won't regret it. All right. Thanks for that Padre. So again, after the great schism and all the things that happened um, subsequent to that, a lot of these national churches were cut off from each other. And because of that, sometimes they needed more support from the larger Christian community. And a lot of these churches came back into communion with Rome, where there was, again, that communion where their sacraments were valid, recognized between both of those churches. Now, we talked about that pentarchy, and there's a difference between churches and right, okay? There's a handful of rights that all descend from those ethnic groups that are reflected in that pentarchy of those five important um, patriarchs. So and you have the rights of the Alexandrian right, the Armenian right, the Byzantine right, 
the East Syriac, West Syriac Rite, and the Latin Rite. Those are the rites of the church, but not necessarily the churches. And those were the original rites. They were the ones that— Those are Yeah, those are the rites that gave rise to the churches that— practice within those rites. Gotcha. So, so for example, in the Alexandrian rite, you have, and we're going to list all of the Eastern churches so that everyone can know that it is not just the West. There's a lot of Catholic churches. So in the Alexandrian rite, you have the Coptic Catholic church, the uh, Eritrean Catholic church, and the Ethiopian Catholic church. In the Armenian rite, you have the Armenian Catholic church. In the East Syriac, you have the Chaldean and the Syro-Malabar Catholic churches. In the West Syriac, uh, you would have the Maronite Church, the Syriac Catholic Church, and the Syro Malankara Catholic Church. I've been to one of those. We have one in Houston, Syro Malankara. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Now, the largest of these, and the one that has the most of those churches, would be the Byzantine Rite, that essentially are the descendants of the Greek, right? Mm-hmm. And you'll have the Albanian Greek Catholic Church, the Belarusian Greek Catholic Church, Bulgarian Greek Catholic Church, the Greek Catholic Church of Croatia and Serbia the Greek Byzantine Catholic Church, Hungarian Greek Catholic Church, Italo-Albanian Catholic Church, Macedonian Greek Catholic Church, Melikite Greek Catholic Church, Romanian Greek Catholic Church, the Russian Greek Catholic Church, the Slovak Greek Catholic Church, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, the Chaldean, no, not Chaldean, and then the Ruthenian Greek Catholic Church, which you are I a got, priest of. I got a question. So... We got that's a shout out to all the churches. All so churches. for all the people who've been yep. asking for the representation of your church, we all put you in there. Yeah, yeah I got a question. So uh, the, all of their ordinations flow back to Jesus and St. Peter and the apostles mm-hmm. and the laying on hands that occurred from those apostles. Uh, and you've got such a different um, ethnic group. So. Were most of these churches all, I mean, like some of them united to where, you know, if you're starting a Romanian church and you're next to, you know, Hungary or whatever, and they're starting to to drift away to their own um, nationalities, does this bishop come over and ordain another? Like, how does that succession look in a situation like this? I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Well, I mean, today... There are canonical issues. So, you know, if if a church is a Romanian Greek Catholic church, so a Hungarian Greek Catholic bishop is not permitted to ordain unless, you know, canon law is used. Um, However, historically, so the borders were more fluid and um, many bishops also had jurisdiction over a number of different ethnic groups. Uh, for one example of that today is actually the mother see of the uh, Ruthenian church, the uh, eparchy of Ushorod uh, in Mukachevo in Ukraine. And within that one diocese, there are parishes that are uh, Ukrainian, uh, Carpatho-Russian, gotcha. as well as Hungarian. And so, and that's all under one bishop. Oh. Mm-hmm. So, so I know that these develop along national lines and through less communicated times back then. But how does one of these become distinctly out of this rite a church, a self-governing autocephalous church? How do these individual churches find that status? Well, um, within the the Catholic communion, so um, the churches are not actually self-governing in the same way. Uh, the, the word that is used or the phrase that is used is sui juris. 
Uh, so they produce, they have their own canon law mm-hmm. that is an explanation of the code of Eastern canon law. And, um, and so they govern themselves within that legal framework. And that term means self-governing. So we, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, meanwhile, autocephalus is specifically used in the Orthodox churches. Okay. And so there, it's a nuanced difference. Um, the, uh, within, within the Catholic communion though, um, when we go back historically, so many of these churches can be grouped together. Mm-hmm. So there is a Ruthenian Catholic church, uh, that came into communion with, um, with the Roman Catholic church, uh, in the year 1646 in Austro-Hungary. And that includes uh, many of uh, that church has split up uh, historically, especially after World War I, mm-hmm. when many new countries were formed out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so that's why you have like uh, the Slovak Greek Catholic Church, the Hungarian Greek Catholic Church, uh, the Croatian Greek, all of those churches technically are Ruthenian. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we share a common patrimony and there is still a connectedness between all of these churches, um, you know, for any time a new bishop is is uh, ordained or enthroned. So our bishops go to each other's functions. The West is so much more simpler. Simpler. <laughs> it kind of is. It really is. Yeah. But that's I probably but just that show, that show of solidarity mm-hmm. is just so encouraging. One within the East. But then also in the West, too, because when my bishop was, you know, when he took his seat and, um, you know, we had his installation, there were a number of people from the Eastern Rite churches that attended and and showed support. Uh, And I think that that is a very important thing as we progress along the path toward Ut Unum Sint, that we would be one. And this is Jesus's desire that we would be one. And in, in that respect... You know, your experience of your common patrimony, um, your experience of interacting with the Latin church and and being here in Houston. What's your experience of solidarity uh, among rights and East and West? Well, besides coming on the Catholic talk show. (laughs) (laughs) Which is your greatest experience. Of course (laughs) course it is. Here in the U.S., so the the Eastern Catholic bishops uh, are their own region in the USCCB. And so there's a lot of collaboration that comes already from that. Uh, all of the churches that are <clears throat> Byzantine, uh, so we collaborate on catechetical texts. And so the we produce our own catechetical series. And it's specific. Now, of course, it wouldn't work for Maronites, who they have their own catechetical text that reflects their liturgical tradition and their calendar. And they're a different right. They're, yes. They're not Byzantine right. They would be of the West Syriac. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, um, so we, there are different types of collaboration. There's also a lot of collaboration with the Orthodox churches. Since we have a uh, natural affinity and closeness, we, after all, I would say spiritually, liturgically, and even theologically, we share probably more with the Orthodox churches than we do with the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And so the, our understanding of uh, who we are, how we are, and what we believe um, there is a lot of common ground. Yeah, and good luck talking theosis and catharsis with this guy. Yeah, that's, I can Who, imagine. Me? Yes. 
But there are a lot of similarities with the East and the West. So some of the similarities are there's seven sacraments. There's the same canon of scripture. They're all in communion with the Pope. They're all in communion with the Holy Father. We all have a strong uh, devotion to Mary. We, you know, we, we venerate the same saints. Any saint that's venerated in the canon of the East is a saint for us in the West, too. One, one of the things, too, that I think a lot of people overlook, they assume that, like, icons are just an Eastern thing or mm-hmm. an Orthodox thing. And and yet, you know, the first 1,200 years of, of Christian history, iconography was common shared patrimony. You know, it's based on the art of the early Christians in the catacombs. And then, um, you know, we see in the West images like the cross of San Damiano that spoke to St. Francis, and that's completely iconographic. Mm-hmm. So, so there is uh, there's a lot more common ground than I think most Roman Catholics even realize. Our Lady of Perpetual Help, one mm-hmm. of my favorite icons of of all time. I, it would be interesting to get a, a an introduction to iconography from you, just for our audience's sake. And uh, I would love to actually go maybe write icons and take some time away. If you have any recommendations for me, and I'm sure there may be some audience members that would be interested in that as well. If you could provide that. Yeah, I would, I would love, (laughs) I would love something like that. Well, I I think one of the best places to go for that is the Holy Transfiguration Monastery in Ukiah, California, where uh, Hagiman Damien is an iconographer. He's the head of the monastery. It's under the Ukrainian Catholic Church, and they provide retreats uh, for iconographers as well as, you know, so it's combined, integrated, not just, you know, painting, but also um, uh, learning the theology and praying. Are you down? Let's Uh, do it. I will do that with you. That would be awesome. I think think we should send Howard. (laughs) Howard, would you want to go? Don't let him talk. Don't let him talk. (laughs) (laughs) The whole show breaks down. Yeah, so, it talks. <laughs> so um, there's so here's a real big distinction. In the West, we have the Mass. In the East, it is the Divine Liturgy, mm-hmm. and there's some real distinctions in the way that the practice uh, happens between Mass and Divine Liturgy. Divine Liturgy is to the East. It's it's all sung. Everyone stands. They have the iconostasis. The way that you receive communion is distinctly different. You know, in the West, you know, you receive it under the two forms. Well, before we get into that, he didn't even get a chance to answer my first part of the question. <laughs> Which was? I, an introduction to iconography. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Iconography for, for the Byzantine churches <laughs> specifically um, is, is a very well-structured theological approach to Christian art. And uh, why it is structured and so traditional and why we, we repeat prototypes. So one would take a sketch of an icon that has been approved by proper religious authority and use that instead of like creating. An artist doesn't just kind of come up with these things. They have to be rooted in the tradition of the church. And the reason for that is because of the iconoclasm. In the 8th and ninth centuries, the Byzantine Empire and, and the Byzantine Church underwent the iconoclasm, which tried to basically in a kind of a Protestant fashion remove uh, all painted images. Mm. And uh, we now think that it was because the emperor and some of the secular leaders wanted to find an, a common ground with Islam, which was, uh, you know, one the longest border of the Byzantine yeah, Empire. Yeah, you can't destroy our icons if we don't have them. Yeah. yeah. And so there was there was that attempt to perhaps make us seem more similar. 
to Islam. Mm -hmm. But uh, ultimately, iconography returned to the church and was ushered back in by monastics who preserved that tradition. And then it was defined. And that's where we get especially references like St. John of Damascus, um, who wrote a treatise on in defense of holy iconography. Now, there was a council for this. There was, yes, yeah, Second Council of Nicaea. Mm. And I've always heard that icons were are kind of like windows into divinity or windows into heaven and that there's like strict rules as to what would go on an icon and what would stay off of an icon. While all the colors have a specific meaning, the depiction of the person is to be uh, what, it, what we say uh, in, in the East, the passionless. So they're not supposed to be smiling images, uh, but rather they are images of contemplation. And so that person or that event is depicted in the light of God, because in order for us to understand fully that person or event, uh, we would have to assume the perspective of God, because from us it has no meaning. So an icon is red, an icon is not a photograph, it doesn't mean to illustrate a specific uh, moment in time, but uh, but rather it is it is to bring us into a dialogue with the divine reality beautiful that is ultimately salvific for us oh that's gorgeous now those icons um that's on the icon screen in the churches of the east the iconostasis correct and what kind of um sim- uh symbolism does that have well the icon screen uh, indeed the structure of of the byzantine churches is based on the Old Testament, and the model is the temple. And and that's common. Even, even in the early church, uh, all the basilicas, old St. Peter's, they were modeled on that temple in Jerusalem. Yeah, when Justinian finished the Hagia Sophia, he said, Solomon, I have vanquished thee. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and so the, the iconostasis is, is, uh, is actually the division between the Holy of Holies and then the congregation, the people. And uh, however, in the Old Testament temple, it was a solid wall. So one would come and offer their sacrifice in front of that wall. Behind that wall in the Holy of Holies were contained the proof of God's relationship with his people. And so it held the manna, it held the tablets of the law, the rod of Aaron, and of course the the angels were depicted also. Contained in the ark. So that was, well, that was in the Holy of Holies. Mm-hmm. And um, and so all of that is paralleled by what we have in our church too. So there's an altar, the man is the Eucharist, the tablets of the law is the gospel book, which is bound in gold and precious stones. Uh, the rod of Aaron is the cross that is behind the altar. And then the angels are depicted on two liturgical fans. Mm, awesome. And and so, Pretty and cool. then... There is a a curtain was originally within the Holy of Holies that it was a seamless curtain that had no beginning or end. And uh, and in the gospel tradition, we hear when Jesus dies on the cross that the the, curtain was rent in two. It was ripped from top to bottom. And the fathers took that to mean the presence of God, the Shekinah, uh, leaving the temple and um, and for us, um, as as church, it also means that the Holy of Holies is now accessible. And so when that sacrifice takes place on the altar, uh, communion is then brought from the altar out of the Holy of Holies and given to the faithful. And so we have a foretaste of heaven, and the, which so is the what icons, the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be that place where 
heaven touches the earth and there's a foretaste of something heavenly. <clears throat> we smell it in the incense, which is used profusely. We hear it in the, in the singing, which is technically supposed to be like angels, but doesn't always come out that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Don't invite us. <laughs> like rich in the morning. <laughs> You're saying I sound angelic? Is that yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> so what are some uh, notable differences for, like, besides the divine liturgy? I think, well, the notable... I, I some... remember, like, the sign of the cross. You, it's, it's, yeah, okay, here. I, I want to say it's backwards, but Padre, it's probably... You make the sign of the cross, and you make the sign backwards. of the cross. <laughs> Let's see. So I would make the sign of the cross... Name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right. Father, Son. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Opposite. You guys are. So yeah. somebody has it. Somebody so has somebody's it. Somebody's it's probably who's us. doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it was changed for whatever reason in the West. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. Uh, now I think you know when we were talking, you said it was probably changed because the West just simply said, "Let's do it different than the Greeks." Out of well, that, that's to one establish of the a difference. I mean, it kind of depends, you know, which pony you have in the show here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. another interesting thing is the way that, uh, you know, typically in the West, it's open hand or your, four, your five fingers together. Yeah. Making the sign of the cross. But in the East, there's a very different. Yeah. yeah. So it's the three fingers together and then the two fingers against the palm. And what does that represent? Yeah, the three fingers, the Trinity, the two fingers, the two natures of Christ. Mm. And then, Father, when you give a blessing at Mass, what do you do with your hands? I typically, I, I give a blessing like this. Mm -hmm. And then... What does that mean? Yeah, well, you, you're, you, you give it such yeah. a better explanation yeah, than to, I do. Yeah. But that, that's, that's how I've always seen Jesus bless in iconography. And, um, and it's always, that's what I was also taught by a priest who taught me how to give a blessing from Rome. Jesus um, is giving the blessing. But Jesus is giving the blessing. But your explanation is just spot right. on. I've seen like in, in Roman churches, I, I, mm -hmm. I was told that it was the opposite. That um, this, three, this was the yeah, three. you're using different yeah. fingers. Two, exactly. yeah, you'll yeah. typically see that's how the Pope would do it. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I've also, of course, seen with the five wounds. That's the other yes. explanation. And I've seen that as well. Yeah. Five. And then, you know, like the, the three persons of the Holy Trinity and the two natures, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, so we bless in the name of Jesus. So using the Greek letters, this is the I, the C, which is the sigma, the X, and then this the C. So the thumb becomes a part of a that's, few of the that's letters. That's fabulous. And what, and what do those those four characters mean? Uh, it's the abbreviation, which we see in icons, actually, mm -hmm. ICXC. And it stands for Jesus Christos, Jesus Christ. That's and so it. we're blessed in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. I just love that explanation. So now another distinct difference in Divine Liturgy and Mass is actually the way that it's received. The That the way the species of communion and Eucharist are received. Now in the East... You receive the two the, the species of the body and the blood under the forms of bread and wine separately. Mm -hmm. You go up, you get the bread, and if you're going to, you know, you receive from the cup, you receive from the cup. But in the East, it's different. Now, I've been to a lot of divine liturgies. I have a lot of Eastern um, family members, so Ukrainian right, Ruthenian right. My aunt was a Ruthenian nun. My cousin's a uh, Ukrainian Jesuit priest. So I've been pretty familiar with it, but it always kind of... It's it's a very different experience with the spoon. So ex would you explain to our our Western ears what the spoon is? Well, in in the Byzantine tradition, so communion was distributed using a spoon, uh, which would mean that the particles, the the bread that was consecrated, would be cut up right before communion, 
and would be mixed into the chalice. And then the faithful, when they come forward, so they uh, look up, open their mouths without extending their tongue, and communion is administered, is dropped into the mouth using the spoon. So you put the bread inside and mix it all mix up? Mix it all up, so, so it's, it's wow. under both species. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. And usually uh, usually the the servers will assist, you know, so... Yeah. Now, we also give communion to children and to infants who have been baptized. Awesome. Uh, infants, when they are baptized, they are also confirmed or chrismated and then receive communion. And very often when the infant is still very tiny, so the priest will take his pinky and dip it into the chalice and take mm. only one drop and put that by the lips of the child. So. Mm. And so awesome. the whole rite of initiation it's occurs. It's complete yeah. right there. Were we separated out over the over the process of the child coming to an age of reason, and then the reception of Holy Eucharist is is at the age of reason, and then as they are conditioned and matured, they come to a profession of of faith. Um, but I do love that that form of uh, initiation, and that's what we do with kids over the age of reason they receive the full ritual of Christian initiation at that point. So mm-hmm. say eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, if a, if a kid comes in at those ages, they would receive in similar fashion, baptism, Eucharist confirmation. Very, very often when, you know, it's brought up and discussed, like why, why we give communion to children who can't understand it. I mean, and my response is usually, well, you know, you're an adult. Do we really understand it? It's true. I mean, the, and the mystery. Plus, plus the child is most innocent before the age of reason. Mm-hmm. So uh, he or she deserves to receive. And, and Your understanding doesn't predicate the true presence well, anyway. Well, yeah. and, and it will spiritually also uh, no doubt provide fruits for the child Absolutely. and his or her growth. Mm-hmm. Now, a mm-hmm. couple, couple last quick things to dis- discuss so that, you know, most of our listeners who are not familiar can understand. Um, in the East... Is there any sort of theological differences that go around either transubstantiation or purgatory? Um, well, uh, that's how many hours do we have? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not much. Um, the, uh, for transubstantiation, I would say there's not a great difference. There is, for us, there is a, a, a focus that is put more on the epiclesis or the prayers for the descent of the Holy Spirit than on the words of institution. And so, uh, for example, in most churches, if you're going to say, well, what's the holiest moment? It's the epiclesis Mm -hmm. because it renders complete the sacrifice. The Mm -hmm. words are just a part of that Mm -hmm. process that happens a little earlier. Yeah, my understanding was that the West tried more to define it dogmatically and theologically what transcends transubstantiation, but in the Eastern Catholic churches, it's the same understanding of the full divinity, body, blood, and soul of Christ, but it's understood that it is a mystery that's beyond our understanding. Well, and that's, that's one of the things we don't call the sacraments sacraments. We call them mysteries. And, you know, and it's um, in most Eastern Catholic, Eastern Orthodox churches, it's okay not to be able to understand or explain. It's like God has revealed so much and then the rest we'll see, you know, it's, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so a part of that, uh, tension between East and West 
comes in the Western church's necessity to define, define, define. Yep. And we blame it all on Thomas Aquinas. Uh, <laughs> he looks very pleased that you yeah, said that. that much <laughs> so I think so funny. one last question is, and this is for our listeners, because I think they should all, if they can, and if there's one near you, find an experience and go and celebrate a divine liturgy. It's our Latin Catholics allowed to go and receive freely at a Eastern Catholic church? Yes. Roman Catholics are always welcome in any Eastern Catholic church. Um, they probably should check out online and find out, you know, if there is a English language service or yeah. mixed because some of our churches are, are still using other languages. Yep. And, um, and then you're urged to follow your own practice of preparation for communion um, as well as um, as well as uh, fasting accordingly to your tradition, um, and yeah, make yourself known. Usually, our communities are quite friendly, yeah. and when we have visitors, so you know, people I've will always help been out really, really welcomed. And then afterwards, there's always there's always a lot of communal activity afterwards. There's a divine liturgy is a lot typically longer than you will see your mass in the West being. But it's really an experience. It, experience. It's really spiritually edifying. And you might just find yourself really enjoying it and and really being spiritually lifted up by it. And you're allowed to do it. So really, you should. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I was so blessed that I, I've been able to participate in a number of divine liturgies from throughout my formation. And we at the Catholic Talk Show highly recommend, highly recommend that you take this opportunity to reach out to some of our Eastern Catholics and to develop those relationships and experience their divine liturgy because it's something that will remain a part of you your whole life. And again, all of us are moving toward this mystery, the mystery of God incarnate and the person of Jesus Christ encountering him and his love for us. We are drawn together as one. And that is the project of Jesus Christ that Ut Unum sent. He's manifesting the Father's will that we would be one. So, my brother, it is great to have you here on on this show. Um, if you are in the Houston area, where can they where can they find you, and and what church are you uh, at? My parish is Saint John Chrysostom Byzantine Catholic Church, and we're located on the northwest side of the city. We're online. Check out our website, uh, and we have two divine liturgies on Sunday at ten o'clock in English and at twelve o'clock. Uh, the Melkite community meets and their liturgy is uh, in English, Greek, and Arabic. And that that's the one that I would recommend for you to, to experience. When you experience some of these ancient languages in the context of liturgy, you really feel a transcendence, that there's a connection throughout time to our ancestors who have practiced the faith just absolutely orthodoxly all the way up to this very present day. And we want this beautiful tradition to continue far into the future, which takes your participation. And something else that you would take, take some participation is to join us online on all the social media channels that we're present on. So be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we want to give a big thank you to all of our patrons. We wouldn't be able to host shows just like this without your support. If you want to consider being a patron and support us financially, please go to patreon.com 
forward slash Catholic Talk Show. There you'll be able to see every way that you could support us financially to ensure that this material continues far into the future and we can have wonderful guests like Father Elias and many more to come. Father Elias, a pleasure to have you. And to everybody out there, we give you our very best. Please pray for us as we pray for you. United in Christ, we will rise victorious. Now, before we go, Father, would you give us a, a blessing in the Byzantine-Ruthenian tradition? Oh, may the Lord God bless you and may he reveal his face to you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you, Father, Thank so you. much for joining See you us. See you next week, guys. Go in peace. Yeah.